0: Hi, welcome back to therapy chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. You might notice I sound a little different. I have a bit of a cold right now. But I wanted to talk to you about an amazing experience I had last weekend. I went to the Women's March on Washington. Anyone who's listened to my podcast knows that I'm a huge advocate for protecting the rights of survivors of sexual violence and ending sexual violence as well as ending all violence i'm totally opposed to oppression racism religious discrimination and anything that sends a message that we are not one people united i'm against it so i proudly went to dc which isn't too far from my house about an hour away and marched with a group of people and felt the love and unity and support. And I went because I think what made me the most strongly determined to go is that I really felt a responsibility to go on behalf of survivors of sexual violence because this is the group of people I've served in my work ever since 2002. So going into my 15th year of that work, And it's been so meaningful to me. And the sense of empowerment that was in the air during that march was something that will inspire me forever. So in that spirit, I was extremely disheartened to learn earlier this week that as of now, which is January 23rd, 2017, the latest I've heard is that there is and an intention to submit a budget to Congress that includes eliminating funding for the Violence Against Women Act, which is called VAWA, V-A-W-A. And this is extremely important to me. And I hope it will be to you who are listening because the Violence Against Women Act is the federal legislation that funds programs for survivors of sexual and domestic violence. It funds programs to prevent sexual and domestic violence and programs to serve survivors of sexual and domestic violence. So that means safe shelters where women and men and children who are being battered in relationships can go and be safe. 24-hour sexual and domestic violence hotlines so survivors can get help 24 hours a day. Forensic nursing programs, the specialized nurses who do evidence collection exams for survivors of sexual and domestic violence, these are the crucial exams that are required in most prosecutions of sexual violence. Without forensic exams, it's very difficult to prove whether or not a rape occurred. And free counseling for survivors of sexual and domestic violence. Legal assistance with restraining orders and other legal services, specialized law enforcement officers to investigate sexual and domestic violence, and prosecutors to prosecute those cases. All of those services are covered by the Violence Against Women Act, and if that funding is eliminated, those services will not be available those are literally life and death services. And I've seen the impact, the benefit that comes from free services being available to victims of sexual and domestic violence in the immediate aftermath of those experiences. And in the longer term, it's crucial. So I hope that you will contact your legislators and let them know that you support funding for the Violence Against Women Act, and you want them to support that funding so that those services will not be cut from the next budget that our new president presents to Congress. So hopefully this episode may inspire you. You're going to hear my interview with a woman who fights for the rights of survivors of sexual violence in Maryland and advocates on a large scale, a macro level by advocating for legislation that supports survivors and by leading the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault And the Sexual Assault Legal Institute, which is a program of the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault in Maryland, the Sexual Assault Legal Institute provides legal services to survivors of sexual violence. And you're going to hear my guest, Lisa Jordan, talking about the services that Sally offers and how they help survivors. So, Let's go ahead and get started. I think you're really going to find this episode interesting. And if you're fired up, I hope you will contact your legislators and tell them that VAWA funding is very important and ask them to please nix any budget that does not include funding for VAWA. You can get more information about what the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault does at www.mcasa.org. And that includes the Sexual Assault Legal Institute. And if you are not in Maryland, but you want to support programs that work to end sexual violence, visit rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org for a list of statewide coalitions like the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And you can also find a state-specific list of sexual assault crisis centers, for your area. And there are other ways you can get involved too. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy my interview with Lisa Jordan. By the way, I support MCASA, as you can hear in this interview, and I serve on their board. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm so excited to have Lisa Jordan the Executive Director of the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault and the Sexual Assault Legal Institute. Lisa, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with everybody and, and also have to acknowledge you as one of our fabulous board members. MCASA, the Coalition Against Sexual Assault, is a nonprofit and we couldn't do what we do without strong board members and you're one of them. So, so thank you for that also.
0: Thanks for saying so. I'm so proud to be a part of MCASA. It's really important to me to make a difference in ending sexual violence. And this is a way that I can help with that on a broader scale than my individual work with clients. So I'm so grateful to be able to be a part of it. So Lisa, can you just tell our audience a little bit more about you and the work you do?
1: Yeah, I'm the director and counsel at the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And so the Coalition Against Sexual Assault is the coalition of all of the rape crisis centers across the state of Maryland. But we're not unique to Maryland. Every state uh, pretty much in America and most of the territories have coalitions against sexual assault, and we're all membership organizations. So we invite not only our rape crisis centers, but also members of the public and survivors and professionals who are working with survivors uh, to join us and to join in efforts to end sexual violence. At the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault, we um, we have a couple of different goals and responsibilities, and we do a lot of public policy work. So we lobby the Maryland General Assembly to ask them to improve the laws that respond to sexual assault survivors. We have a prevention program. We have programs on training for professionals working with, working with survivors. And then we also have Sally, the Sexual Assault Legal Institute, which is one of the first legal services programs truly really devoted to responding to the needs of sexual assault survivors. Uh, those are the sorts of things that we do here in Maryland, and again, across the country, they have similar sorts of responsibilities, although I will say that that Sally started here in Maryland and uh, only a few other states have that type of program, but we are trying to spread the word and give survivors in other states access to legal services as well.
0: Yeah, so I think what Sally does is particularly interesting because so many survivors do not realize First of all, many people who are survivors of sexual violence don't realize what their rights are within the criminal courts, but Sally helps with survivors' rights in civil courts. So can you talk about what that means?
1: Yeah, I I would love to, and I, I think that you're absolutely right. Not only do survivors not always know about their civil legal services rights, but often professionals and even attorneys really don't think about the civil side of things. And so just to be starting from ground zero, criminal cases involve the state government prosecuting a perpetrator. But when you factor in unreported rapes, only about 3% of rapists spend a day in jail. So the criminal justice system is certainly an avenue that we want to improve. It's something that many survivors look at and consider, um, but we're still a long way away from having a criminal justice system that really is effective for survivors. In the civil arena, there are some other things that survivors can do, and one of them is to get a, a peace order or a protective order, and, you know, we think of that as something that's often available to victims of domestic violence, but most states have some sort of order that's also available to survivors of sexual violence that can order the perpetrator to stay away and that can really give people uh, peace of mind and so that's one civil option. Another issue that comes up uh, is in the employment law context. So sometimes survivors are sexually assaulted at work either by a supervisor or a co-worker or a customer and there are employment law issues that, that come up. There's, there's sexual harassment cases, but there are also things like family medical leave acts. And you know, to give you a, a, just an example, because sometimes I think stories are the things that we remember the most. We had a, a woman that we were working with and she had uh, worked at a business. She had really had a hard time in life and, and not had a job for a while. And she was so excited to finally have a job. And then a customer uh, sexually assaulted her, a brutal sexual assault. She was out for a little while, and then she and her therapist were working together, and her therapist helped her create a plan to go back to work a little bit at a time. You know, the employer, it was interesting, the employer was very supportive when she was just out of work, but the employer was not as happy when she wanted to come back part-time and then work her way back up to full-time. But the Family Medical Leave Act protected her. She had worked at that place long enough. The employer was big enough. She had the proper documentation, and the lawyer helped her put together a case that proved to the employer that she was entitled to Family Medical Leave Act leave. And just like someone on the chemotherapy, you know, could take some time off, but not all time off every every second of the week. She had those same rights. And so that's a civil legal issue that you might not always think of when you're thinking of sexual assault. Some other types of of cases that we see at Sally and that uh, people see across the country are cases at colleges. Um, And we've gotten a lot of press about colleges recently, right? We hear about uh, some of the terrible cases that happen in colleges, the different responses, of colleges, and you know some colleges are still pretty unresponsive, but many are for one reason or another really working on the issue to try to make sure that they respond to survivors, and an attorney can help with that whole process can help make sure that the survivor's privacy is protected, that perhaps a survivor moves from one dorm to another, maybe exams are deferred, all of the myriad of of things that might come up after a sexual assault. And it's not just college, it's also secondary and even primary schools where we see these civil issues where we we really need to help survivors. And then I'll just give you two more more examples. Um, One is that in family law, you know, sexual assault comes up and, you know, people don't think about this, but, you know, say you are married to a perpetrator, which happens far too often, and criminal charges are pressed. Even if that perpetrator is convicted, you're still married because marriage is is something different and you have this family law case. And so that's a civil legal need. The last one that I'll mention is is immigration law. So immigrants who are here without documentation, if they're sexually assaulted, we want to be sure they come forward, that they have access to justice, but also that they come forward so they can help make the community safer. And one way we do that is that we offer people who are victims of violent crimes, including sexual assault, we offer people who are victims of violent crimes access to U-Visas, that allow them to stay in the country if they're helping with criminal prosecution. So all of those are the sorts of things that are civil legal issues, peace and protective orders, employment law issues, college issues, immigration, family law, and those are the sorts of things that Sally and similar programs can help with.
0: Well, I really appreciate that you gave examples because I think you know people don't know exactly what we're talking about if you were to just say, family law cases when, you know, someone is a survivor. That's too vague for most people to understand. I think stories really help people get what it is. What about human trafficking cases? I know we have a lot of human trafficking cases in Maryland and that Maryland is, seems pretty active in trying to address this issue. Does Sally have services that would help people who've been survivors of, of human trafficking?
1: We do we have services for people who are survivors of human sex trafficking, so we can provide um, legal services and that includes in the criminal courts and also human victims of human sex trafficking have certain other federal and state rights, um, but we also help the rape crisis centers who are working with survivors and you know this is uh, an issue that I think we 're really only at the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, understanding what's happening on the streets, how many uh victims there really are and what are the best ways to to help survivors of human sex trafficking. The the cases are extremely complicated I think from a personal perspective because you have these legal needs but in some ways the legal needs are are uh, such a small part of uh, someone's needs. Imagine that you're 12 years old and taken into a situation where you, you really have no access to the outside world. You lose your education, you lose all of the things you learn as a, a young woman or a young man, and you may be forced to use drugs and become addicted. You know, Six years later, when you're 18, you have an enormous number of needs, housing, education, mental health, Addiction issues, you know, all those things, Laura, that, that you might work with as a, a therapist or your colleagues in the, the clinical world, as well as the legal issues. So those survivors of human sex trafficking uh, really are people we need to tend to and devote significant resources to help.
0: Thank you again for that explanation, because I think so many people um, who are just ordinary Americans that haven't really heard much about human sex trafficking, when they hear the, you know, oh, there was a, an arrest of a sex trafficking ring at a certain hotel or something, and it's hard to even really wrap our minds around what that means and who the victims in those situations are, and, you know, just how they ended up in those circumstances it's it's just pretty much unfathomable to the average person who just doesn't know that things like that can go on so putting it in context of you know a 12 year old taken away from everything they know and forced to use drugs and being subjected to sexual violence for years you know of course that person's going to have immense needs mm-hmm.
1: And it really varies. It's it's like any other sex crime in that the types of cases that occur vary from that sort of kidnapping situation to we've sadly seen an increasing number of young women who are still living at home and being forced to traffic themselves, uh, you know, kind of after school or or during the time when they should be in school. And I, I think you're right. People don't imagine that these young women or young men could be vulnerable to trafficking. They kind of think of trafficking as always international or always people who may not be like like them in their family situation, but it it could be. And I think we all need to be aware of those issues.
0: Wow. Yeah, because I wasn't thinking that it would even be everyday kids who are right in our communities that can be Facing the same kinds of things, are you saying that um, their families are making them prostitute, or are you talking about like gangs?
1: Well, uh, we've seen both of those situations. So we we've seen people who are forced by their caretakers to traffic themselves. We've seen people who have an individual pimp who is you know kind of uh, facilitating all of that, and we have seen a few gang cases also. It's, wow. uh, it's complicated and, and scary stuff. And I think like all sexual assault, you know, there's a reluctance to think about it. And, you know, often people's first instinct is to say, this isn't going to happen to me, to my friends, to my family, to the people I know. But it's important for all of us to to think about these issues and be aware and talk to our kids and talk to our colleagues about ending sexual violence and the importance of consent and all all of those issues so I I again really appreciate the the opportunity to be on your podcast to to help uh, talk about this really difficult issue
0: well I agree and you know we don't want to think about this I mean I'd rather not think about it I'm sure you wish it wasn't things aren't the way they are but they are that way and we just have to face it because you can't solve a problem if you just leave it in the shadows, you have to bring it to light. So that's definitely why I wanted to have you on.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, One of the ways that we we bring things to light at MCASA, and I think most of the the sexual assault coalitions across the country is uh, through trying to pass laws in our state legislature. And uh, one of the bills that we've been working on for several years now, um, and Maryland is sadly very behind the ball. this one is the issue of pregnancy as a result of rape and so we are once again next year going to try to pass a law that says if you get pregnant as a result of rape that uh, you can have the rapist parental rights terminated because some women decide that they want to have the child that they want to raise the child and it's really unconscionable that our law does not give that woman a way to terminate the parental rights of the rapist. So we we just are starting on that process for next year uh, again. But I, I really hope that anyone who's listening checks what their own state's laws are on that. And if you're here in Maryland, please please help get to uh, pass the Rape Survivor Family Protection Act this year. This year is the year. So um, it's just long that we to not make this, this law pass, and uh, 12 other states have good, solid laws like the one we want to pass. So let's make Maryland the 13th.
0: Lisa, what possible objection does the legislature have to what seems so obvious that it should be, a rapist should not be able to have parental rights over a child that, that was conceived through a violent crime?
1: Yeah, it it is perplexing. I I will give you that. I I think that unfortunately the root of the objection is a concern that women will lie. But you know what? People lie. That's why we have courts. That's why we have rules of evidence. That's why we have judges. That's why we have all of this process. And these cases uh, would have the same courts and judges and process as any other case involving termination of parental rights. It would still be at the the higher um, clear and convincing evidence. So that's higher than a regular family law case. Usually in a family law case, you get custody or visitation based on 51% or preponderance of evidence. Would not require conviction, but, but nor should it because we terminate parental rights in other cases without requiring conviction. Like a child abuse case, for instance, we don't require that people who abuse their children be convicted of that before terminating parental rights. So we just want to have the same for rape survivors, no more, no less.
0: It seems so obvious. I hope any Marylanders who listen to this episode will be looking back in the future and saying, oh, thank goodness that was passed, of course. But in the meantime, in 2016, please support the, what's the name of
1: the law? the Rape Survivor Family Protection Act. So it will be introduced in the Maryland legislature again in January of 2017. Um, and if you're interested in Maryland in helping, you can visit MCASA at mcasa.org and sign up to get our emails. And we will tell you the status of the law and make suggestions about who to call and what to say and help us advocate to improve the laws for all survivors in Maryland. Thank you for sharing that. And can you talk about some of the other ways
0: that MCASA advocates in the legislature? Um, like what types of laws for survivors, in addition to that one, have been encouraged? And also, you know, what kinds of changes have happened through MCASA's advocacy?
1: Yeah, thank you. We uh, we really have a very robust um, legislative program and are are proud of the work that we do in the Maryland legislature. So we try to provide input on any of the laws that are affecting sexual assault survivors in Maryland. Uh, Last year we made some real improvements in our protective order and peace order laws. So I mentioned those before and those are the, the orders that say that someone has to stay away and, um, from a technical point of view uh, it was an issue about stalking and what is stalking because you can get a peace order or a protective order if someone is stalking you and say hey don't stalk me anymore Um, but the way the law was written you had to be subject and fearful of physical harm right then and there and we added that if someone is stalking you using emotional distress you can still get an order An example of a case where the change in the stalking law will really help involves the internet, right? It used to be to stalk someone, to really make someone fearful. You you kind of did need to have physical contact. Um, But these days with email and social media and all of these different things we can do over the internet, we're finding people are terrorizing other people. From states away, hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away. And our change in the law really responded to that. And as you know, we, we can get a peace order or protective order based on these things that are causing emotional distress, even if you're a long way away. And even made some specific changes about people who, you know, post images of, you know, a former boyfriend or girlfriend up on the internet without their permission. So, what's sometimes called revenge porn. Or who take people without their consent and made sure that our law was up to date with our technology. Um, so that's another example of a law that AMCASA helped pass this last year. That's great. And that's a really important
0: one. I see a lot of teenagers. For one thing, I see a lot of teenagers in my practice, and um, I have teenagers myself. So I know what goes on. And it's so common for you know, someone to send, basically a a girl is typically kind of pressured to send a nude picture to the boy she likes and she sends it. And then he shows his friend and he shows his friend and soon everyone sees it. And then it ends up getting posted somehow on social media or something. And it's so humiliating for the person who innocently believed that the boy, she was sending it to, wasn't going to show it to anyone, as I'm sure he promised multiple times before convincing her to do it. And, you know, it's a, it's an extreme form of bullying that's, you know, got aspects of child pornography. And I mean, it's just a terrible thing. I'm so glad that that law was passed in Maryland. And I know it's an issue nationally.
1: Yeah, it, it is. And, and it certainly was an improvement last year, but you're, you're right to flag this as an issue. We still have some, uh Some more work to do in that area to make sure that we can, in particular, go after the people who are sharing the image, not creating the image. We generally can go after those perpetrators, but when they transfer that image to someone else, and then that person transfers it to someone else, that's still a gap in our law here in Maryland. And I, I think a lot of places in America... The, the practice that you're talking about also has a name now called sextortion, and it's something looked at at the federal level also uh, to try to address that, that idea that people are kind of coercing uh, young women and young men um, to send images of themselves and then sharing them with all sorts of people.
0: Yeah. And like so many things related to sexual violence, we tend to blame the girl who sent the picture and say she was an immoral and decent person for sending the picture. But you know, it's they're teenagers. And when someone says, send me a nude picture, and you really want them to like you, and you think they like you, and they're saying how special you are, and they're promising it'll just be a secret. It's kind of like the dynamics of sexual abuse and grooming, you know, just it's, it's, abusing the fact that the person they're asking to send the picture is innocent and trust them.
1: I think you're exactly right. Exactly right. And that issue of grooming, I think, is something that, um, that people need to think about because perpetrators groom victims, you know, in this situation, trying to encourage teenagers, but also adults to send photographs. They groom children saying, you know, trust me and helping them to feel comfortable before trying to molest them or molesting them. But they also groom their parents, you know. So if someone is grooming a child, they may also try to get the parents to trust them to say, oh, it's okay, you know, leave, leave that little boy or little girl with me for a few moments while you went to the store and then, oh, that's fine. So maybe a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And so, you know, I, I don't want to say don't trust anyone, but this is something that happens that we need to be aware of. And we need to think about, you know, most, most perpetrators of sexual violence are known to the victims. And often known very well, very close family friends, family members, trusted uh, community members, there just aren't that many cases involving strangers, and people need to be aware of that. Very
0: true. And something else about child abuse, child sexual abuse, which has really been discussed a lot nationally lately, is that. Oftentimes, survivors of childhood sexual abuse don't come forward until much later to say, this happened to me. And many states have statutes of limitations that prevent those people from reporting it to the police much later after the abuse occurred. And many people are calling for those statutes of limitations to be eliminated on child sexual abuse, knowing that so often it takes decades for people to even come to grips with realizing what happened to me was abuse and it was wrong and it's affected me my whole life and I want to let someone know about it. What is the status of that in Maryland?
1: Well, in Maryland for criminal cases, um, child sex abuse is a felony and there is no statute of limitations on any felony in Maryland. So, Although it's a very tough thing to do to prosecute a case uh, decades later, it's theoretically possible. Um, But we have a much tighter statute of limitations for civil cases. Uh, Essentially most survivors need to file a civil case by age 25. And so that's something that many survivors are working on trying to change. It's something in process fully supports changing. And it, it used to be that survivors had to file uh, by age 21 and we were instrumental in getting that moved up to age 25. You know, but you're right. I mean, it really does need to be older than that. And you probably know uh, as well or better than I do as a therapist that so many people really don't fully understand uh, what's happened to them or decide that they want to deal with it until later. Often when their own children turn the age that they were. So I've seen, you know, many clients who, you know, for instance, if they were 12 when they were sexually abused, it's not until their own child turns 12 that they they really decide, I, I want to see a therapist, I want to look into legal options, I, I want to deal with this in another way. Absolutely. And so it's not a fair situation with our laws right now.
0: Yeah, so that kind of brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about is People who are listening to this may be survivors. They may have been raped or sexually assaulted, experienced childhood sexual abuse, and maybe they've never told anyone or they never reported it. And they they're comfortable with that decision, but they really care about the issue and they want to make a difference. And then there are other people who aren't survivors at all, but they just realize how wrong sexual violence is. And they want to change that in our culture. What, Types of things can survivors do to get involved and feel like they can actually make a difference.
1: Well, again, they they certainly can join their state sexual assault coalitions, and you know, there's no requirement that you identify as a sexual assault survivor or not to be a part of your your state coalition. But most communities also have local rape crisis centers, and if you wanted to do volunteer work or become involved at that level. Uh, rape crisis centers are underfunded, understaffed, and often in real need of of help. So that can be an option for uh, for people to do something as well. And then I I don't want to underestimate you know the the value of just speaking up, of making sure that if somebody makes a joke about rape or you know says oh you know someone's asking for it because they have dressed in a certain way, just speaking up and calling them on that and saying that, no, that's that's wrong, that 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 can be hugely important and really impact our culture. And finally, I I wouldn't be doing my job if I, I didn't mention that, you know, all of us are really in desperate need of financial support from our communities. Most rape crisis centers and sexual assault coalitions have grants that allow us to do specific things, but it's the support of the community that lets us do things like advocate to change laws and keep our our buildings open and the air conditioning on and and all of those sorts of things. So that financial support is also crucial. So making donations
0: to statewide coalitions for, for unrestricted funds that can be used for things like paying for Building expenses and stuff, and donating to sexual assault crisis centers for the same purpose, volunteering, joining the email list to be notified about legislative priorities in your state so that you can advocate on that statewide level and let legislators know you support the bills that are being created to help survivors. And doing our part to talk with other people, just people in our lives, about making jokes about rape isn't funny, survivors, people who report rape are very unlikely to be lying. It's like, what, two to eight percent of all reports of sexual assault are considered to be untrue, and that's no
1: more than any other crime, am I right? Yeah, but that's exactly right. Two to eight percent. And that's the, the same for any crime, according to the FBI. Yeah. So, you know,
0: challenging those those beliefs that people have that what someone was wearing makes them deserve to be raped, that victims lie, that, you know, rape isn't a problem, that rape is only a problem of women and not men. Um, in truth, anyone can be raped or sexually assaulted, male, female, any gender any age. So just speaking up about those things can make a big difference.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, and doing things like what you're doing today, just raising the issue, making sure people are talking about it and we don't talk about it. If we don't talk about how to stop it, if we don't challenge people when they make fun of rape victims or suggest that people are lying you know, we're never going to change the culture that allows rape to be so prevalent. So, so thank you again to, to you, but also to anyone who's taking the time to, to listen about this really difficult topic. Um, it does make a difference.
0: Well, Lisa, thank you truly for what you're doing. I know you've been with MCASA for a long time and you've really been a tireless advocate on every level for survivors and, and for ending sexual violence in Maryland and even nationally. So um, I'm grateful for what you do and I appreciate that you're willing to come on to Therapy Chat today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: I hope you enjoyed my interview with Lisa Jordan. I am constantly in awe of the work that Sally, the Sexual Assault Legal Institute, does to help survivors of sexual violence. And I've heard firsthand accounts from people who've used their services and how helpful it's been. So I'm grateful to be able to support this organization. And I hope that this episode has somehow inspired you, whether it's to feel empowered as a survivor of sexual violence, to know that you do have rights and that you can get help, or whether it's as someone who has not been affected by sexual violence, but you now understand more about the issue, and maybe you want to get involved and make a difference. Again, if you'd like to give some support to the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault, you can find them at www.mcasa.org. And I strongly encourage you to consider getting in touch with your legislators to support funding for the Violence Against Women Act, which supports MCASA, and many wonderful sexual assault programs throughout the U.S. Again, if you would like to find another program that is working to end sexual violence that you could support, check out the Rain website at org, and you'll see information about how you can get involved in your community. Thanks so much for listening to Therapy Chat. I appreciate you all, and I'd love to hear your feedback. You can always leave me a message on my website, therapychatpodcast.com, or send me an email at laura at laura com. And if you didn't catch that, you can send me a message through my website as well, therapychatpodcast.com, which connects with my main website, laurareganlcswc.com. Take care. Talk to you soon.
1: Thank you for listening to the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, visit Laura's website at www.loraraganlcswc.com.